We give you the title of the sermon so we can get this over with right at the beginning. The title of the sermon is called Ananias and Sapphira. And yeah, mm-hmm, I know. This just goes to show I don't call the shots. He does. Uh, who would preach on Ananias and Sapphira on Memorial Day weekend? We literally, all we need is an uplifting, fun message about the Spirit of God filling us and we can go wherever we're going to go. It's a beautiful day. Weather's amazing here in the state of Alabama. I don't know if that's true wherever you're joining us from right now, but why in the world would we preach this message on Pentecost Sunday? Number one, because that's just where we happen to be on, on this current week. There wasn't like an orchestrated plan to go, ooh, let's land on one of the hardest stories in the Bible for Pentecost and Memorial Day weekend. That'll be great. No, not at all. In fact, when I saw it this week, I was like, really, Lord? Okay, here we go. Let's, let's get into this. Uh, but there is an amazing tie from this story back to Pentecost that gets addressed in the interaction between Ananias and Sapphira and the apostle Peter. Now, if you're not from a church background, you just showed your hand because while everybody was laughing and kind of gearing up for the sermon they're about to hear, you might be pretending to know what we're all talking about right now, but some of you are here and you're like, I've never heard those names before in my life. And I have no idea why he's building it up like it's some kind of big moment. Well, you're going to know in just one second when we open the word of God what I am talking about. But we're going to do this in a biblical way, paying close attention to the actual details of the account, both the details that build up to it and the falling details that come from this moment. And just trust me when I say this sermon's going to get weird for a second. And then it's going to make sense how it collides with our stories and situations right here and right now. So please, on holiday weekend, do everything you can to tune in with me. Some of y'all who are used to coming to the 8.30 service, you got extra sleep today. You are ready to go. 10 a.m. is like the perfect service time. We should be prepared and we should have our Bibles. Did you bring your Bible on Pentecost Sunday? If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up all over this room. Hold it up at all of our other locations. So awesome. Look at somebody next to you say, I love my Bible. I love my Bible. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. We are going to pick up where we left off last week. If you missed last week, wow, y'all. So important that you hear that sermon. It was about how great boldness is connected to gospel readiness. How bold we are in our faith is directly related to how prepared we are for the moments where it's time to step up for the glory of God. That's one that you really have to know to spill into this talk and this sermon because so much of the book of Acts is Luke going from these amazing narratives about what God is doing to these amazing sermons that recap the story of the people of God. So we're locked up in one of the amazing narratives that has miracles and amazing moments and a lot that needs to be talked about. But we're coming out of a moment where the believers prayed for boldness and it says the building they were in started shaking and God answered their prayer on the spot. It's a powerful moment and in verse 32 we're going to pick up talking about the community life of the church that's going to sound a lot like something we read from Acts chapter 2 just a few weeks ago. Acts chapter 4 verse 32, if you're there, say I'm there. It says all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them 
brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I read this today because this collection of verses is the preface for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it says, as miracles are happening, buildings are being shaken, there's an elevated level of generosity that has welled up in the people of God, so much so that no one among them was in need. That doesn't sound that impressive to Americans in the Bible Belt in 2023, but let me just say, in the time period that they lived under Roman oppression, Poverty was rampant among the Israelites. And for there to be a group of people gathered together who can confidently say, we didn't have anyone who had need who was numbered among us, that is a bold statement, borderline impossible. And it only happens because such a spirit of generosity was spreading across the people that they literally didn't consider their own possessions their own. This is an anti-American version of the story of the early church that you just need to hear right now. Nobody was so tied to their own possessions that they let it block them from what God was doing in and through their community. And don't hear me trying to give some kind of spin on this message that says we should all just put all of our possessions in the middle and split them. That is not what this passage is saying and that is definitely not what I'm saying. But I will say the spirit of generosity that was present in the church 2,000 years ago should at least at a minimum convict us where we sit right now in 2023. People are selling entire fields, bringing all the money from the proceeds and laying it at the apostles' feet as if it was never theirs in the first place. And one of those people is this guy named Joseph. Now they rename him Barnabas and you need to mark that name because that is a major character in the story of the early church. Why do they name him Barnabas? Because they called him son of encouragement. I love that. You know, encouragement is a gift given by the Holy Spirit, and it connects to everything we talked about last week about courage and boldness. You know, the word encourage means to put courage inside, to literally use what God has done in your life and to put courage in the life of another. I need to say that up front because, man, last week we talked so much about boldness, and I know even as I was preaching that message, boldness can coincide with us thinking that being courageous in our faith is all about standing up in front of a group of people and saying something with courage. That is not boldness according to the scriptures. That is a form of it. But I love that in the scriptures, right after the believers are filled with boldness, there's a believer who's encouraging, putting courage into other believers through the gift of generosity. What you and I do with our stuff has the capacity to put boldness into other people, not just be an act of boldness in and of ourselves. And I saw that more clearly in my life than ever before, nine years ago when we started this church. When I was reading this passage, I was like, oh man, there's a story in our church that hardly anyone knows that has to get told. And I don't even like telling this because the guy who it's about is not going to enjoy that I'm saying this publicly in front of thousands of people, but it just fits so well with what got articulated in Acts chapter four. You know, nine years ago when our church began, we were a couple months in and about ready to just shut the whole thing down. 
It was awkward and weird. I was 25 years old, had no idea what I was doing starting a church. We moved here from Atlanta with very little, no, very little, no church planting experience. And we, didn't, we weren't like a part of a network or a denomination. So it was like just literally a group of people praying in a hardware store invites a couple from Atlanta to, hey, let's just start a church on a whim that God might be in it and let's get together. Well, you, you think about that and it sounds so romantic and God's hand was in it and it was awesome. It was actually super awkward and difficult and we were all ready to give up a couple months in. It was relationship tension. There was no children's ministry. We were meeting at Trinity Lutheran Church on Sunday nights, which is an amazing church that's uh, over there right next to Amsterdam. If you ever drive by there, that's where like the genesis of ACC actually was. But we're a couple of months in and I remember because it was the Sunday right before Thanksgiving, Courtney and I had all these friends in town from Atlanta who came to see our new church. And I use quotes because it you could barely call it that at the time. Well, I didn't know that holidays in Auburn are like everybody leaves, or at least theoretically in my mind they do. What are you guys all doing here, by the way? Um, and, uh, and so it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We had a small group of people gathering that was mostly made up of college students, a couple of families. But once you delete the college students, it's like, and this is more of a small group than an actual church. So they come to visit and it was like a lot of personal shame and embarrassment for me to go from this mega church in Metro Atlanta and come to Auburn to start this church that doesn't really look like a church and it was awkward at best. But then Courtney actually got the flu that week. So she's at home. I'm embarrassed. I remember preaching that night and I'm not just like preaching so that the church survives. I'm preaching so that I have any sort of an income, like just like giving it all that I got on Sunday nights at 5.30 p.m. And I remember being so sweaty, so embarrassed and get to the end of that sermon and just ready. Courtney and I had actually had a conversation that week of, hey, we tried this thing. We thought God was in it. Clearly he's not. Let's go back to Georgia and, and re, recalibrate and just we, our whole lives are in front of us. It's fine. But there was a man who stood around and waited to talk to me that night. And he could tell that I was just kind of all over the place about what had just happened in my life the last couple of months. But he was holding two envelopes. And he walks up to me and I'd only met him a, a handful of times. And he says, hey, I, I know that for you, the last couple of months were crazy and a lot has happened in your life. I just want you to know my wife and I have been praying and we want to come alongside what God is doing in and through this church, but we also recognize that you need to catch your breath and agree that God has sent you here. So here's what we're going to do. And he takes, I remember he had two envelopes and I was wearing this jacket that had all these pockets. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, what was I thinking? I mean, like just pockets everywhere. He took, he took one envelope, put it in my pocket. He says, this is for you and your wife. Y'all need to get away from Auburn, catch your breath and just get with the Lord and rest and recover and step into this season confidently. So take her on a trip. This other envelope is for the church. And this should take care of everything the church needs for a couple of months, just so you don't have to feel like everything rides on whether or not your next sermon is any good or whether or not people stay. We love you guys. We're with you. And we can't wait to see what God's going to do. And I, I, I can confidently tell you, I know God has all of his means and ways of working. You would not be sitting in the seat that you're in if that man doesn't do that. But so often in the story of our church, it's all about like the boldness that's present from the stage. And man, Miles, thank you for being courageous. Thanks for preaching the word the way the word is preached. I just want to tell you, I'm not up here preaching the word if a whole lot of people weren't very, very generous over the course of the last decade to set up moments where things like this can happen. The responsibility of courage in the life of a believer doesn't always look like articulating from a stage what God has done, but it does look like being faithful with what God has called you to steward right where you are right here and right now. 
And what I, one of the things I love about that story, that guy's actually in this room right now. I'm not going to tell you who it is. So don't be like, is it you? Is it? Stop. But I love that on Memorial Day, like a decade later, he can look up and see. Man, you plant a seed and watch God grow it. Now think, 2,000 years ago, what was it like to plant a seed in the early church in the book of Acts. It looks so dumb at the time, but Barnabas is literally giving away all the proceeds from his sale of his land to go, I'm investing in the only thing that will endure forever, the church of Jesus Christ, the bride united to Jesus himself. So I just call us right now to think in terms of courage and to think bigger than just a moment on stage. Now, with that in mind, we're gonna go into our bringing time right now. And yeah, I'm doing bringing time, right? I'm dead serious right now. And uh, you can bring your tithe and, and you just know as I'm doing this, I want that spirit and that heartbeat present every week when we invite you to do this. You never have to. But also I wanna invite our church to think through who you can encourage financially. Think in your life, who is it? that would freak out by a little act of generosity that might just have them take their next step further in their faith. I'm not talking about bringing time necessarily. I'm talking about like a tip at a restaurant or somebody who you know has been in financial need and all you've been doing is praying and you can like get involved in a tangible way. Let's think through courage, but let's think through this lens. Now, you might hear that and go, Miles, that's manipulative. You just told that story and now you're inviting us into bringing time. No, I'll tell you what would be manipulative. It would be for me to read the whole story and then do bringing time. Because when you hear what's about to happen in this story, oh my gosh, y'all, it's about to get crazy. So thank me later that bringing time is now and not after what we're about to read. Are you ready to get back into Acts chapter five? All right, here we go. Let's read the whole thing. This is actually in your Bible. Acts five, verse one. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. The first evidence that we have of a youth group meeting in the book of Acts, by the way, is young men carrying out the bodies of those who lied to the Holy Spirit. Just wanna point that out there. Verse seven, it's not over. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
hopefully including all who are at Auburn Community Church, Pentecost Sunday, 2023. This is one of those stories where if you grew up reading the Bible for the first time like me, and you're having like a daily quiet time, and you don't know what's coming, you read it and you, you almost look up and then you go, wait, what? And then you have to look back down just to make sure it's actually there and actually real. On the heels of the amazing account of the generosity of Barnabas and the believers, notably selling possessions and laying them at the apostles' feet, we have an account of Ananias and Sapphira who have decided to lie about what they received from selling land, lay a portion of it at the apostles' feet, and each one, one at a time. And I love the personal responsibility that's here. The husband gets to answer for his own actions. The wife gets to answer for hers. Each one lying to the Holy Spirit of God. They die on the spot, and they're carried out and buried within three hours. Breathe. What in the world does this mean? And what is happening here? I want to invite you humbly to consider what is actually written on the pages of Scripture and not what you assume to be true about this story. Because I know, especially because we just talked about money on the front end of the sermon, some of us have made up our minds. This is the threat that if we are greedy with our stuff, God might kill us. And that is not at all what is happening in Acts chapter 5. Let's go there and read it together. Y'all okay? Is everybody good? Not what you're expecting today. Good. Neither was I, but I'm just here to serve. Verse 3, then Peter said, watch this, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? This is the first evidence of demonic resistance in the book of Acts. There will be a lot. Remember I told you at the beginning of the series, wherever the gospel spreads, the darkness will resist. Well, there was some resistance earlier in Acts 4 when the Sanhedrin got together and arrested Peter and John, but that was all persecution from the outside. Now we got an attack from the inside and from Satan himself. And notice what Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Pay so close attention to that phrasing. That phrasing tells me, and this is debatable, you can do your own research, that Ananias and Sapphira were born-again legitimate Christians. Listen to me. I believe this couple was a part of the people of God because nothing in this passage tells us anything contrary they're among the people who believe. They're living among this community of believers. And when they commit this act, Peter says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you lied to the Holy Spirit? Where did they lie to the Holy Spirit? From within. See, it's possible for a believer to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and still allow themselves to become a home for the darkness. Now, hear what I'm saying and hear what I'm not. Do I believe that a believer can be demon-possessed I would say it depends on what you mean by demon possess. Can a believer be occupied with authority by the powers of darkness? No. Can a believer be owned by the spirit of God, but grieve the spirit and leave a window open and a door open for demonic activity to come in and have their way? You better believe it. And that's exactly what's happening here. 
See, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, but shut down the Spirit's power so much so that you allow the enemy to have his way in and through your life. And so because I'm saying out loud, I believe two people who dropped dead at the apostles' feet were actually legitimate believers, your eyebrows should be a little bit raised right now and your spiritual sense is high going, what in the world is going on in Acts chapter five? Because this doesn't sound anything like the God we have been preaching about for years at this church who's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, compassionate and gracious, seemed like a pretty honest mistake that we can all... uh, kind of resonate with like what is happening in this passage okay here's what you should be asking who wrote acts luke why did luke write the gospel of luke and acts as the continued redemptive story from old testament to new testament so question this just for those of you who have done your homework are there any stories in the old testament that sound eerily similar to ananias and sapphira yeah There's three that I thought of off the top of my head. And as I did my research, these are the three most common associated with this story. One of them happens in Numbers chapter 15, where the people of God are getting ready to go into the promised land under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And there's this guy who goes to gather firewood on the Sabbath. And they're like, hey, he gathered firewood on the Sabbath and he wasn't supposed to. And they inquire of the Lord and and God says, kill him, stone him right now. And they do. There's another moment in Joshua chapter 7 where a guy named Achan takes some possessions from a group that they overpowered and nobody knows that he's hiding some of these relics and gold and idols in his tent. And when he does this, the people can't even defeat this small group of people called Ai. And so they're trying to figure out what happened. And God's like, somebody's keeping a secret and you need to address this. Achan comes out and says, hey, I, I did, okay, I'm, I'm the one responsible, it's in my tent, like it's, it's all my fault, and Joshua says, we're going to stone him and his entire family, they're all going to be put to death right now. And then there's another moment where David is about to take the throne of Israel, and he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and the Ark is supposed to be carried on poles because it's holy and it's set apart, and so the law talks about, hey, you always carry it on poles, you never touch it. Well, one of the oxen that's carrying the Ark starts to slip, and there's this guy named Uzzah who reaches out and tries to save the Ark from hitting the ground, and he dies the moment he touches the Ark. And you're like, what? All three of those stories are eerily similar to Ananias and Sapphira in that they seem to cast a shadow on the character of the God of the Bible, who we come to know as very slow to anger and compassionate and gracious. But they also leave us asking the question, what's similar about all of those moments? And the similarity between all three of those moments and Ananias and Sapphira's moment is, you need to mark this, a major transitional moment for the people of God. The people of God are moving out of Egypt and into the promised land when that man is stoned because of his breaking of the Sabbath and when Achan is stoned along with his family. And then the people of God are moving into a major moment of transition where David is taking over the kingdom of Israel when Uzzah dies for touching the Ark of the Covenant of God. And then the people are headed for another major moment of transition when Ananias and Sapphira drop dead because of their lying to the Holy Spirit of God. And so what you have happening here is you have God revealing there is something that you need to pay attention to because in moments of transition, sometimes, and this is rare, 
God has to make a statement to show you what will and will not be tolerated among his people. For Moses and Aaron, it was a seriousness about the law. For Achan and his family, it was a seriousness about idol worship and greed. For Uzzah, it was a reverence about the presence of God. And so for Ananias and Sapphira, look up here, y'all. Do not miss this. Stay with me. I know this is a controversial sermon, but we're all in this together on a holiday weekend. Stay with me. What was it? What statement is God trying to make? And I want to show you from the scriptures, it's not don't sell your land and keep the money for yourself. That is not the lesson. What is the lesson? Look at verse four. Didn't it, talking about the land, belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Now, this is where it is not fair that I have spent 20 plus hours studying this passage and you spent 20 plus minutes. Actually read what is in front of your face right now. What did Peter say and what did he not say? He said, didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Peter says, no one told you you had to sell your land. You did that on your own. And then even once you sold your land, no one told you you had to give it to us. That was all you. But now you've lied in such a way that God is pronouncing judgment on your earthly life. What was the lie? The lie wasn't greed. The lie was pretense. The lie wasn't, man, they got some money and decided to keep some because they were, you know, sort of fearful about the future. The lie was they put a gift at the apostles' feet and pretended like it was everything when it was only some for the sake of looking as spiritually mature as those who had given everything. God is opposing their fakeness. That is their fraud. And he is going in a powerful way. My church cannot consist of people who are dedicated to making themselves look more spiritually mature than they actually are. That's the statement God is making right here. This is not, and I hate to like burst some of y'all's bubbles because you use Ananias Sapphira to go, oh, God's gonna judge them, God's gonna get them. There are plenty of passages in the Bible about greed. I'm not saying greed's okay. I'm not saying making your life about material things are okay. In fact, some of the passages you don't think are about greed are actually about greed. You know how we always, I just found this out this week. You know how we always use the, the, the dress modestly verse to police whether or not girls wear one pieces or two pieces at youth camp? You know how we do that? And we're like, hey, we got to dress modestly, you know, and I do believe in dressing modestly. But you know, when, when Paul wrote that, it wasn't about how much skin you're showing. It was about how much you're flaunting your wealth to show it off. So that one's actually about greed. And you didn't even know that. This one is more about being a fake Christian. The issue with Ananias and Sapphira was they wanted the benefits of looking like they gave everything when they only gave a portion. It was hypocrisy and fakeness on full display. And I believe God opposes people pretending to be more mature than they are. And here's the warning for us as a church. When our, you can write this down, it's a little bit of a long sentence. When our ambition is more about managing other people's opinion of our spirituality than about having an honest, pure heart before God, Satan has a massive stronghold in our lives. 
when our ambition is more about managing other people's opinion of our spirituality than about us having an honest, pure heart before God, Satan has a massive stronghold in our lives. Ananias and Sapphira could have had a moment of bold authenticity before the apostles. Can you imagine what this would have looked like to go, you know, we saw everybody selling their stuff and laying it at the apostles' feet, and we saw how much they were celebrated and lauded by the community. So we thought, hey, let's join in on that. God's moving. But then, and I'm, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking this. I'm not saying this is 100% what happened. But maybe they sold the land with the best of intentions. And then once the money was in their hands, that's when temptation hit. And they thought, man, maybe this was more than we were planning on getting. And, you know, we do have to think about some things about, well, what if... We'll just do the best of both worlds. What if we give some of it, keep some back for ourselves? Then all of them will think that we're that generous and we'll get celebrated like everybody else and then we'll have our thing right over here. What if they would have fallen at Peter's feet and said, we sold a field and we planned on giving everything. But we realized after we sold it that our faith was weaker than those of you guys who gave everything. So we brought some and can y'all pray that we would have the faith to bring all? That's what God wanted. God wanted an authentic faith community where people could be who they really are and go, hey, I'd, I'd love to give it all. <clears throat> Think about that prayer. God, my faith is weak. Help my unbelief. I, I want to have the faith to bring everything, but where I'm sitting right here, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is messing up. Good thing I'm only preaching once today. But everything about what I'm feeling and sensing right now doesn't line up with who I want to be in your sight. And I think about for me in my life, and I, you can feel free to read this into your story however you want, but for me, this is probably the most convicting sermon I could ever preach about myself. Because the nature of doing what I am doing right now is that it creates a false perception of my spirituality based on an external gift. Some of y'all think, that I am more spiritually mature than I actually am. Simply because the version of me that you get is one where I am articulating realities about the kingdom of God in a loud, some hopefully somewhat interesting way. But you can't see into the inner motives. It could be motivated week in and week out by honestly, humbly serving you and making myself available to God. Or it could be motivated by, I want them to think that I have my life together. I want them to think that everything's going well. I want them, I want to manage the picture they have in their mind about who Miles is. And when I cross over from having a genuine, pure heart before God, to having this pursuit of, let me manage the picture that the world sees, God puts the fear of God in the church at this moment and goes, I can't have that. I can't have fake. And I love his, I love his mercy even in it. It's so ironic because Ananias' name means God is gracious. So it seems like irony, like God is gracious, but yet, Ananias dies when he's dishonest? Are you sure you're that gracious? Listen, this is, this is why Ananias' name is God is gracious. If God put people to death every time they displayed this kind of fake spirituality, no one in this room would still be breathing. That's how gracious God is. That's how patient God is. This is not a story for calling God something he's not. 
This is a story that's supposed to remind us. Y'all think about it and be honest. Come on now, we live in the Bible Belt and most of us are Christians. If we're getting judged like this, who's making it through that church meeting? I'm not. My family's not. I know some of you. You're not. You're falling at Peter's feet dead, exposed in all of your fakeness and fraud of who you really are. And God has been gracious with you. You're still breathing. You're still here right now as an act of his grace and mercy. And the invitation is not, hey, next time Miles does bringing time, make sure you don't hold anything back. No, the invitation is stop feeling like you gotta be this catered, manipulated version of yourself to be accepted here. Be who you really are because God will not bless who you pretend to be. Well, you have to be who you really are. I have to be who I really am. And man, oh gosh, it feels so good to applaud that, doesn't it? Until it actually gets as dirty as some of us really are. See, we, we, we can be a church family that's passionate about that on the surface. Will we respond that way when somebody confesses something that makes you raise your eyebrows? Will we respond that way when we watch someone whose faith is weaker processing and being sanctified over time and we're going, oh, wow. I didn't think they were going to confess that. I mean, y'all, I've had, I've had moments where people have confessed stuff to me and I've trained myself about certain sin issues of like, hey, whenever somebody confesses this, I need to respond like this in the moment because they've gotten so nervous about saying this. So just my calmness will speak to them. But there are some moments where people have shared stuff with me and I, I am legitimately in the moment like, Holy Spirit, wow. Um, I got it. Hey, as a church family, this is our moment to recalibrate our minds and go, nothing anyone brings into the light in this church needs to make us do anything other than celebrate the grace and mercy of God and see people and welcome them right where they are in this moment right now. That's what a real authentic church actually looks like. And this is very hard to maintain because of the way the vast majority of us grew up. If you grew up, in a church-going family that was more motivated by the external appearance of being a family going to church, I would argue you are actually in a worse position than a lot of us who didn't grow up in church at all. Because you've got to rewire your brain out of a spirituality that says, this is about what they think about us, to this is about worshiping the God of the universe who's made a way for me. I've got to be myself. And if we all can just take the mask off and take off the veneer of just trying to be what everyone wants us to be, whether on social media or in this community or in our jobs or in our friend circles, and just go, hey, before the cross of Christ, I am Ananias, I am Sapphira, let's get on an evil level playing field and let's have a church loaded with real, authentic community. We have to be a church that's passionate about this. How are we gonna do it? Two quick things and then we'll sing. Are y'all okay? Once again, so sorry to do it on Memorial Day weekend. So sorry. Mm, Number one, confess what you would rather cover. This is what it means for us. Confess what you would rather cover. I truly believe that if Ananias and Sapphira operate with confession, the story ends completely different. One of the main leaders in the church 2,000 years ago, especially the church in Jerusalem, was James, who wrote the book of James. And he talks about confessing our sins to one another that we may be healed. 
A true healing spiritually doesn't just come from a private moment of, dear God, forgive me for da 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 thank you for the cross, amen. It comes from looking into the eyes of another human being and feeling that level of love and acceptance as you articulate out loud, hey, this is what I'm carrying. And I, I'm not like asking us to go one by one in front of a church of thousands and just start naming our stuff. But I will say when a community catches fire with real confession, the Holy Spirit breaks out. You know, that was the main marker of the Asbury revival a couple months ago was, was, was like young people confessing stuff that they were previously hiding. The Holy Spirit loves that. Not because, oh, I love making people look shameful and everybody seeing who they really are. No, the Holy Spirit wants to shine through the brokenness and go, hey, you don't have to live your whole life under the prison of believing lies about your identity. You can actually be welcomed, healed, and whole as you say out loud, man, this is what I've I've seen. This is where I've been. This is who I am. And then it can be corrected in the moment to go, no, this is who you really are, washed in the blood of Jesus and set on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've done entire sermons about confession. One of them was last summer. It was called Out of Hiding. It was actually back-to-back sermons in 2 Peter because this was one of the main things God laid on my heart during my sabbatical. I got to spend time with uh, my accountability partner and lifelong friend and say some things out loud that had kind of gone hidden for a while and just had things spoken over me in my identity that was like, I wonder how many people in Auburn, Alabama or in Birmingham, which you guys are even better than we are at faking it at times, let's be honest, and other communities, like how many of our people are hiding under the weight of, I gotta make this curated and look a certain way for them. When you confess what you, and how how do I know what I'm supposed to confess? What's the number one thing you're tempted to cover? That's it. It's not about confessing the thing that's easy for you to confess. It's about reaching for the thing that in your flesh, you don't want anybody to know because it damages their picture of you. And we create a culture, not of getting on stage and naming our deepest, darkest secrets, but of safe vulnerability within community groups and interchurch life. Oh my goodness. Now we have a place where the Holy Spirit is spreading like a wildfire. And I would argue that's what he wants to do at Auburn Community Church more than he wants us to fill the football stadium or basketball arena. Like I, it, we've had moments in the last couple of months of going, man, God's doing something so special in Auburn. We could, we could do some kind of like big thing. And, and, and I've prayed about some things and maybe we will in the future, but I have just felt so burdened by the spirit that what the spirit wants more than a big worship gathering is worshipers being themselves in day in, day out community. So we've got to be willing. You've got to go to that place. And like I said, I don't have time to go into the full sermon there, but man, we got, we got to model this well. Number two, and this is it. This is for you personally. Plead the blood of Jesus that covers you. Plead the blood of Jesus that covers you. The story of Ananias Sapphira and Sapphira sobers you up and makes you kind of fear God, which is a good thing. We like to talk about the fear of God like it's a bad thing. And like, it doesn't mean be afraid of God. It means like just be aware of God. Okay, if you're in front of a lion, are you just gonna be aware of that lion or are you gonna be semi-afraid? Okay, think that's what it's like to fear God. It doesn't mean that you fear what he might do to you. It means you're aware of his immense amount of power and glory. And so the fear of God leaves you at this place to go, hold on, if my righteousness depends on any combination of how I organize and arrange my life based on how much money I give or how faithful I am or what I do or how I talk to people, if I'm being measured by that, I got nothing before holy God. So the common posture at Auburn Community Church has to become, I plead the blood of Jesus. It's what Ananias and Sapphira should have reached for. 
and you're still breathing today, it's what you get the opportunity to reach for right here and right now. What does that mean? That means all my hope, my peace, my righteousness comes from the blood of Jesus alone. And let me add this, y'all look up here. It's easy to say that when you're doing horrible because you're like, I got no other place to go. We also plead the blood of Jesus after our best days, after our months of supernatural consistency. You are not finally pleasing to God now that you got sober. Now that you've broken free, now, now, I had to plead the blood when I was there, but now I plead my effort and my, no, 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 no. It's like, I am just as needy for the grace of God on my best day and on my absolute worst day. So we're gonna plead the blood of Jesus like we do every week. Let's go into a time of communion. If you got your communion set, you can grab that now. If you didn't get one, you can just raise your hand right where you're at, at all of our locations. I always encourage you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you just wanna reflect in this moment I, I wish I could set up communion with like a 10 minute speech each time because these are supernatural realities happening. I got, a to, I got a whole sermon on that called the body and the blood that you can go back and check out. But every time we do this week in and week out, this is your reminder at the end of the sermon. God's not measuring you after this sermon based on how good or bad you do at living out everything I said. God has washed you clean with his blood so that you can live your life free from trying to earn his or anyone else's approval. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to curate it. You don't have to perfect it. You have to be honest though. So as we take communion, as husbands pray over their wives, let's remember the body and the blood and why we have this kind of access to God. And then we're gonna sing a song that's called Plead the Blood. And it's about God. If there's a stronghold in my family, if there's a stronghold in my generational tree, I just wanna see it break right now in the name of Jesus because I'm willing to be real and honest and open. Let's build that kind of environment at all of our locations right now. And then we'll come back and sing together.